social norms. Social norms are weird, aren't they? I mean, think about, well, we just use that big title for social norms, things that are acceptable. Social norms, they, they vary. We have expectations about how other people will behave and how they will not behave. And, you know, there are social norms that are things within our culture, within our nation, within our region, sometimes they're not even the same from one town to the next or even within the same family. I won't say who uh, the person has passed away now. It's a previous, uh, a late family member, I'll put it that way, who I don't know why. I mean, I just couldn't handle this. With her, when she talked with you, she had to be six inches from your face. I mean, like right there. And she would just keep moving in on you, an older uh, family member. And... uh I remember we were at church one day and she came up to talk to me and she kept getting closer. I mean, she was like right here and I kept, you know, slowly moving back a little bit and moving back a little bit. Finally, I was against the wall and she was moving up on me and I just put my hand on her shoulder gently and held her there because I just couldn't take being this close to somebody. It's just not my social norm. Things are just strange. And if you're not from the immediate area, you don't know the, the social norms, even if the, they're broad ones. I remember I was down in southern Indiana preaching a revival down there years and years ago. And uh, I'm with my friend Don, he's a preacher, and it, this is the most, the, this is the smallest, most rural county in all of Indiana, Ohio County. And in the whole county, there is one blinking light. There isn't a stoplight anywhere. And we're going down the road, and he's driving, and he's got his hands up here like this, and a car's coming the other way, and as the car goes by, he lifts one finger up and tips his head back. Just like that. And I look, and the other driver does the exact same thing. Lifts one finger, tips his head back. And I was like, oh, must be his friend. Going down the road a little bit further. Another car comes by, exact same ritual. One finger pops up off the steering wheel, head tips back. Other driver does the same. I said, who is that? He says, I don't know. And I'm sitting there going, um, okay. After a little bit, I said, so why did you wave like that? And he says, he just kind of chuckled, shook his head and said, rural Indiana. It's just what they do. And it was totally alien to me. And everybody knew the exact ritual, and they all did it. And it was weird to me. Kathy and I, when we went to uh, England, oh, man, it's like six years ago now, um, we were going, the highlight of our trip was to go to High Clare Castle, where they film the, the show Downton Abbey. And the event that we were going to was what they call fancy dress. In our parlance, that would be a costume party. And you were expected to be in period clothing set for the Edwardian age. Okay, but it's a one-day thing, and we had to leave our hotel in costume. So I'm wearing a top hat and and tails, and Kathy's in a 100-year-old style um, fancy gown. And we walk through London two blocks to the tube station, get on the tube, go to the train station, get on the train and ride an hour 
on the train to get there. And as we got closer and more stops, more and more people in costume kept getting on. When we left, it was early in the morning because it started at like 9. And we had to, you know, travel all that way. But on the way home, it was rush hour. The train and the tube were absolutely full of people. And here we are sitting in 1912-style, like, go-out-for-a-special-occasion clothing, and everybody on the train acted like everything was completely normal. And they were going out of their way not to act like we were weird. You know, you've got these time travelers sitting there on the train, and everybody's just... (laughs) Finally, I caught... There's a young couple sitting across from us, and I caught them, like, stealing a glance over at us in in full costume. And uh, so I just leaned forward. Everybody's completely silent on this train, by the way. I just leaned forward, and I said, do you know what the best part about traveling in period costume is, and everyone on the train, everybody on that car turned and looked at me. They're just dying to know, and I said, it's watching everybody try so hard not to stare at you and pretend that everything's just fine. And everybody burst into laughter. And now they're, they're talking with us. They're asking us all kinds of questions. There's a guy on the, ch- on the train, the tube with us, who's got like 14 facial piercings and he's got purple and green hair up in a mohawk. And when I said, watching everybody try so hard not to stare at you and pretend that you're normal, he said, that's my life. <laughs> Social norms demand that we behave in certain ways. And when you don't, everybody wants to know why. Jesus broke social norms all the time. But it's important that we understand that Jesus wasn't being a rebel. I've heard people say, oh, Jesus was a rebel. No, Jesus was not a rebel. There is not one place in Scripture where the term rebel is used favorably. It is always looked at as being evil. That's not what Jesus was being. Jesus simply wasn't adhering to social norms that did not come from the Father. Things that were not put in by him and sometimes were put in contrary to the will of the Father. They were there for bad reasons. But when he broke it, broke them, it was almost always a cause for commotion, and it made people think. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're going to do verses 1 through 15, which probably cuts off a lot of what you're used to when hearing about this particular story. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then there's a little note here by by, uh, uh, the Apostle John who's writing this, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Then it goes back to the story. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, 
near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Depending on which time frame John was using here, that could mean noon or it could mean 6 p.m., and the experts are divided on that. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then another little parenthetical statement there, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where will you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will, be, will thirst again, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come back here to draw water. The first bit of this passage is, is a curiosity, at least to me, because it basically points out that Jesus, becoming aware of the intelligences of the Pharisees about the growth of his popularity among the people and of their jealousy, he knows of their jealousy, and so Jesus is making a tactical decision to retreat back to the area where he is known and they are less powerful. He learns that they've heard that he's making more disciples than John had. Well, guess what? They didn't like John because he was drawing away people after him. And in fact, they had arranged for him to get arrested and, and they, they, they were muddling and making things problematic. They didn't like him. And now Jesus is becoming more popular among the people down around Jerusalem than John the Baptist had been. And so when Jesus finds out that they know this, he's like, okay, it is time to head back to Galilee. And he does this for a reason. He does it because he knows the timetable of his father's will. And he can't risk having the Pharisees try to murder him ahead of schedule. Now, sometimes Jesus, being God, works through miraculous means. There was a time when he was in a crowd and they wanted to, to stone him or throw him off a cliff. I can't remember which one. And he just, it says he just moved, passed through them. He didn't allow them to touch him. And sometimes Jesus, being also man, simply worked through normal means. He finds out there's a problem coming, so he avoids it. What's he do? He just walks away. He goes back to Galilee. 
he's heading back up to where everyone knows him and he knows the Pharisees will kind of ignore him, but also they don't have as much power up there. He's been teaching in Judea for about eight months at this time. And he doesn't want things to get out of hand until it's time in God's timing. It says that he had to pass through Samaria on his way from Judea to Galilee. Now, this wasn't a geographical need. If you think about your map of the Holy Land, you've got the River Jordan, you've got the Sea of Galilee, you've got the Dead Sea. Most everything is on one side of that. You've got at the bottom, Judea, in the middle, Samaria, at the top, Galilee, and you could just walk back and forth between the two. However, most Jews would cross the Jordan, walk up, not going through Samaria, and then cross back into Galilee because they didn't want to be around the Samaritans. Plus, the Samaritans didn't really like them. They didn't really want them coming through. There are stories of where they would kind of lay in wait and, you know, mug them and kill them when they came through their area. So it wasn't that he had to walk through there for geographical reasons, but I think that it's entirely reasonable to interpret this had to as in he had to in order to fulfill a mission that he had for himself. He was setting some seeds that, if you read in Acts, those seeds are later harvested by Philip when he goes into his mission in Samaria. So they stop at one of the most famous wells in history. And the apostles go into the town to buy food while Jesus is sitting at the well. He's worn out from everything that he's been doing, all the stuff that's been going on. He is, after all, physically a human. Like you and I and the adulterous woman that he's about to meet, he gets tired. He has physical needs. She walks up to him. Jesus is sitting at the well by himself, and she walks up. And Jesus immediately starts to smash through some social norms, some cultural considerations that nobody else would do. Norms that have only served to separate people and increase hatred and increase distrust. Norms which God did not endorse, nor did God install them. They say, well, you know, we can't go be around them because they're unclean and that would go against the law. So they kind of blame it on God. But this is nothing to do with God installing these. This is people saying, I don't want to be around them. These are also norms which people, including his own apostles, were completely shocked to see him break those norms. He asks her for a drink of water, and she herself finds this shocking. For starters, she's a woman, and it's a rare thing in this setting for a single man to be alone in the presence of a woman. But then he adds to it, that he starts talking to her, and she's a Samaritan. The narrative says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Let's think about that for a minute. It says, 
For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But where are his apostles at this moment? They're in town. They're in town buying food. From who? The Samaritans. They're in there talking with them, dealing with them, but only in a certain way. When it says, for they have no dealings with Samaritans, it's making reference to a much more personal level of contact. He's sitting at the well. It points out, she says flat out, you have nothing to draw water with. He asks her for a drink. Where is he going to get his drink from? She's got a bucket to draw water. Maybe she has a ladle to go with it to drink from. Either way, Jesus is saying, give me the thing that you drink from, and I'm going to drink from it. And this is mind-boggling to her. Nobody from Judea would ever consider drinking from the same object as a Samaritan woman. These are the kinds of dealings that Jews don't have with Samaritans. And yet there he is asking for a drink. Now, we should top this off with what Jesus already knew about her, but it isn't in today's scripture, it's in the rest of the passage, which you're probably familiar with. When she starts to ask him questions, he tells her, go and fetch your husband. Which kind of would have been appropriate getting back to social norms. Hey, we're starting a conversation here. It's probably not correct for us to be talking alone. Go get your husband, then we can have a conversation. But Jesus has a lot more going on in that comment than that. Because she says, oh, I have no husband. And Jesus says, that's true. That's really true. He says, you've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now isn't your husband. In today's parlance, He's basically saying, you've been married and divorced a whole bunch of times, and now you're shacking up with some dude. He's pointing out, I already know this. You see, the Jews wouldn't have accepted that at all, either. And I want to point something out here. I didn't see anything written about this in my commentaries, but it clearly says that they're at the town of Sychar. But she isn't referred to as a Sicariot. It just says she's a, a woman of Samaria. And in looking at that, I, I find it almost certain that she had to move from wherever she was originally from, more than likely due to her bad reputation with men. There are a couple of reasons that Jesus was blunt with her about her sexual sin, past and present. One was so that she would realize, as she did, that he had information directly from God about her. This she interpreted as him being a prophet, but later she realized that he was the Messiah and led her whole town to him to hear what he had to say. And for, many of them came to believe in him. 
But the second reason was so that she would realize that he could see right through the facade that she had built up. The defenses she used to turn away rudeness or even hostility from people that were bringing this toward her about her sin. Her her defenses were pointless with him. He knew her. He knew everything there was to know about her. And yet he was still asking her for a drink from her tainted bucket made unclean by tainted lips. And he lets her know that there's something very important coming. So important that it couldn't be stopped by mere cultural norms getting in the way. He was telling her about the coming of the Holy Spirit for those who believed in him. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as of yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When he first tells her that he would have given her living water, she was like, okay, cool, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. Give, give me some of this good water. How are you going to get it? She understandably doesn't comprehend what he's talking about. Living waters was a term that they used, but living waters back then was usually used to talk of like, a spring that was bubbling up of its own accord or a stream that was flowing versus, you know, dropping a bucket in a hole in the ground to get some muddy water out of the bottom. Living waters was something much more preferable to drink. You only drank from some muddy hole in the ground if you didn't have any other source. And he's saying living waters, and so she's probably thinking, okay, he's got some good water. I'll take it. He explains, admittedly in shrouded language, that it doesn't mean any kind of water that she's ever heard of before, but one which satisfies completely. It satisfies a need in your life that when you have it, you will never thirst for more of it. And she wants it. She's like, okay, I don't want to have to keep coming down to this well every day. It's dirty water anyway. So she still isn't really understanding what he's talking about. Chances are that if he had made these comments to the biblical scholars down in Jerusalem, you know, the guys who were trying to figure out a way to get him killed, if he had talked to them about living waters, they would have understood what he meant. They would have gotten it right away. Why? Because there's all kinds of hints throughout the Old Testament that talk about the Spirit of God as living waters. They would have known 
what he was talking about. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, just one example. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. There's probably a dozen verses like that that the scholars would have understood. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. And the scholars who hated him would have gotten the reference. But it wouldn't have done them any good because they were rejecting him. And even seeking to destroy him. With a few exceptions. There were a few good ones. This woman was clueless when he was talking to her about giving her the Holy Spirit. She was no biblical scholar and her life showed it. But what she was, was a person who was open to teaching and therefore accepting him as the promised Messiah and receiving the Holy Spirit. She didn't know Bible that well. In fact, most Samaritans didn't. But we, when you read down through the rest of the story, she's the one who goes to the whole village and says, I've met a man who told me about everything in my life. I think he's the promised one. I think he's the Messiah. This was the ultimate social norm that Jesus was going to be breaking down for his people. The social norm of being separated, mankind from God. Since the time of the fall of the Garden of Eden, there had been a breach between God and God's children, His people. Sin had kept us apart from Him. We weren't able to be in the presence of God. That was the norm. When Jesus did finally permit himself to be killed on the cross, he broke down that social norm. The one that had been around for eons since the fall of Adam and Eve. The Jews had been having the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence dwelt for about 1,400 years at this point. The curtain of the Holy of Holies, separating God from man. That was the social norm, and you didn't break it. Mark chapter 15, verses 37 through 39. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Sometimes social norms are good things. They tend to keep civilized society functioning and keep problems to a minimum. This is, for the most part, why they exist. 
Sometimes we make them into laws, but they're just social norms. You drive on the right side of the road, you stop at a red light. It keeps society functioning. And when you see somebody not doing it, you're like, ah, ah, they just went through the red light. They're good for the most part. Sometimes they exist for reasons that have come to pass. We have social norms that we follow sometimes that if somebody were to ask you why you do that, you'd be like, I don't know, everybody does that. Jesus was doing a lot of smashing of pointless and harmful social norms that day. And he pointed to a day when the ultimate of social norms would be done away with. And we could once again be in the presence of God through his Holy Spirit. He was telling them that the Holy Spirit is coming, living waters for all who believed in him. We wouldn't be separated by this big heavy curtain from the presence of God. We would have the presence of God come to live within our hearts. But only if we believe in Him and accept Him. And the very unnormal thing that He and only He can offer, forgiveness for our sins. Only Jesus can give us that. And it will only be given if you accept it. It's not a universal blanket that just everybody's going to heaven. Jesus offers it to everybody. But it only goes to the people who accept it. If you haven't, you're still on the outside. You're not being covered by that forgiveness of sins. And you're not receiving the Holy Spirit. If you haven't, I encourage you to do so today. Please stand as we sing.